gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty, wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, this is Radio Gormagon. I'm Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and welcome back to the fourth transmission of Radio Gormagon. Having evacuated Castle Gormagon's kitchen while Sleestack chases and gulps down his dinner, Gortie, the Mandarin, Dr. J, and I have retired to a private room off the Big G Bar and Lounge just off the lobby of Castle Gormagon, your interdimensional vacation destination, to further discuss how polarized and partisan our society's gotten, and if it'll get worse. Come on and join us. Don't tell Pewter, but I'll comp you a drink. But the only, I think the other thing, too, is there's a, a general lack of knowledge on how the government actually works. You know, if you ask somebody, you could probably go, if I go on the street and ask people, what do you think of our democracy? Well, democracy is great. Well, you know they live in a, in a republic, right? What, is, what do you mean? People don't even understand how the government how this works as representative government. I mean, you saw this with the whole electoral college. You know, oh, my God, Hillary Hillary's the president. She won the popular vote. Well, it doesn't work that way for a reason, you know, because you'd be ruled by you know, a small enclave on the East Coast and California and the rest of the country be at their, at their mercy. But again, people don't understand there's a fundamental lacking of just general civics. And I think that's, you know, I don't know if it's by design. I mean, you want to put the tinfoil hat on, but... Well, I mean, know, think about it. Educa- education is de-emphasized information in favor of method, right? For however many years now. Um, I mean, you could trace it back to guys like Dewey and stuff if you go far enough back, but at least last 20 years or so, even down to the elementary level, you know, hey, you don't want to be a sage on the stage. You want to be a guide on the side. Give me a freaking break. So, Doc, you were you were waving your hands as if you were speaking earlier. Did oh, we, did we uh, talk over you? Yeah. So I think one of the things is that the liberals have also reframed the argument of, you know, what constitutes a dependent from that they, they, they frame everybody as helpless which is completely pathetic. I mean, I think of the whole contraception mandate in, in the Obamacare bill. and Because you that, hate women. You, well, I mean, with, but the whole thing is, is if, you're a, if you're a female lawyer and you make $150,000, $200,000 a year, you know, you can afford contraception. And the but whole you, idea but is... But you never that, would because the, the men lawyer would never let you make. Well, they do make that much because the men lawyers are making 500000 But um, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but it's still... The point is that it's still enough money for them to empower themselves and take care of themselves. And it's no one's business what they're doing. See what I'm saying? And... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so you have... You, they've extended the helpless into everybody. Oh, I don't want my well well patient visit, my free well patient visit taken away. I mean, it's a goddamn thirty dollar copay, twenty five dollar right. copay for your annual visit, and it's like, oh, I don't want that to not be free anymore. They're taking it away from me. No, you're just making a making a copay for Pete's sake. And um, the other thing they've done is they've created this thing called the welfare cliff that you all are well aware of. But you know, for somebody in that, it's what Paul Ryan pushes people off of. Yeah, he pushes people off of that. The, the whole idea is that if you're making $30,000 a year, in order to you know, get out of all of the benefits that you're getting from the federal government, you need to make a $40,000 leap to $70,000 a year. And because as you're earning more, the, your benefits, your government benefits are decaying at such a fast rate that you know, going from $30,000 to $70,000, you're losing money as far as net 
between the amount you end up paying on taxes, the amount of subsidies that you're losing, they've created an entire lower, trapped lower class with the tax code, with government benefits. So, you know, they see it, you know, their amygdala's fire up and they're seeing it as viscerally, you're taking away my stuff. You're taking away livelihood. Well, you and are. I can't get to where you are because I'm, I have 30,000 to 70,000. And, you know, between them and then just making all whole classes of people feel like you're taking something away from them too, you know, they've built their core constituencies. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and but to, the fact is for those people, that's a rational decision. I mean, yes. and a rational reason to get worked up because as you say, the system is structured in such a way that these, you know, incentives and disincentives financially exist. And it's one thing, it's one of the reasons why I'm more libertarian on economic matters than most anything else is that ultimately people can do the math when it comes to money. Um, they can make risk, they can make cost benefit decisions better because you have a bunch of cold numbers in front of you than you can on like, hey, maybe, you know, I just got drafted for, by the Boston Celtics. I'm going to do some cocaine. Well, didn't work out for you, Len Bias. Hey, the, so, but people can make the decision like, well, this will leave me with a smaller stack of money versus a larger stack of money. So we all do, right? And I, those people, I think, are right in some ways to think or feel the system is rigged in the sense that they do face very steep disincentives financially, which they can figure out, and they get mad and they vote in ways that we go, boy, that's against a, a system that will ultimately leave them free and richer, freer and richer over time. But that over time is a, is a tough sell, right? Because over time doesn't mean three months. Over time doesn't mean, am I going to be able to buy my kid a you know teddy bear for Christmas? We've got all of this mess, this administrative state, this originally, again, here's another, if you want to go back to the Wilson era, um, Gort, uh, the income tax itself, as opposed to indirect taxation, as something that locks people into really caring what the federal government is doing here or there and you know often drastically changing their activities on that basis you know like the crazy ways that the very rich would go about shielding their income from the you know 95 percent rates that existed early in the century and uh you know these crazy companies and investments and and all these things that you know happen to have carve outs or whatever you know people are always gonna get around that and that's why you want your tax you know code low and simple and stuff but is there a way, do you guys think we'll ever see a way out of this or a lessening of this? Or do you think we're, a lot of people say, hey, you know, Civil War II is coming or, you know, Cal Exit is coming, or, you know, New York City cuts upstate loose or what have you, because we're dealing with increasingly incompatible cultures as well as political ideas. Do you think we, do you think we Americans get out of that and get, is there a way to, take our foot off that particular accelerator to use the Mandarin's earlier metaphor and turn around some of the trends that are going on now? Or do you think that's eh, a pendulum? Things are crazy now. They were crazy in the late sixties and the into well into the seventies. And they mellowed up. We were, we lucked into a charismatic principled guy uh, in Reagan. And he also happened to make some very good foreign policy decisions that ushered in a, you know, unprecedented era of prosperity. Um, well, since the twenties, but do we, do we hope for, circumstances like that events dear boy or do we be more pessimistic because i'm one of nature's own pessimists and say boy the trend lines are terrible and they will continue because trends always continue well until they don't of course but i don't know what do you guys think i don't see anything happening without a crisis in the sense that you know the republicans got elected and they hadn't even been in office for more than a month and when they went home to their town halls 
there was wailing of wailing, gnashing of teeth, rending of garments over the uh, repeal of Obamacare. These guys had been in Washington long enough to unpack their boxes and then go home. And they won. You know, the Republicans kept Congress. They were ushered in a Republican president, theoretically. And they have a Republican Senate. They have all the pieces there. And they haven't done anything yet. And their town hall meetings, you would think that they were, you know, they, they showed up at the wrong address and they were in a blue district instead of a red district. And, yeah, I know a lot of that's all ginned up. But what ends up happening is all these Republicans, you know, leave with like the tail between their legs. You know, part of that my, is the, my social part media of that feeds are filled with all of my liberal, you know, calling in and saying, you know, putting up, call your senators, call your friends senators, call every senator that might pussy out because, you know, these guys are shakeable. And as long as the Republicans don't have the balls of steel that the Democrats do, I mean, the Democrats voted in Obamacare and had were voted out of Congress, voted out of every state house in the uh, and, and governor's mansion in the country. I mean, they were like they took took one for the team big time to get that entitlement in. And, you know, the Republicans, I mean, they just don't have the CEO Jones to be able to say, we're going to go for it and we're going to take a lump. And in, until something forces the hand on the right, that pendulum is never going to swing fully right. Because well, th yeah. those new guys, let me say something in, in the defense of the new guys who went back with their tails between their legs. They got sold out by the Republicans who had been in Washington and who had been, you know, laboriously and strenuously and carefully making the case against Obamacare, but who never seemed to get around to actually figuring out what you do, you know, with the, do we repeal? Do we replace? Do we repeal and replace? Do we, you know, defer? Do we tweak? You know, there is no, there was no plan. And that's, that's political malpractice. That's where the professional politicians like, you know, you know, uh, the usual, you know, Emmanuel Goldstein's of uh, hate figures on the uh, fire breathing right, you know, Paul Ryan, Mike McConnell, these guys, uh, Mitch McConnell, excuse me, those guys, they should have had they should have had a plan, right? Because that's what they're that's what actually professional politicians are supposed to do, right? Institutional memory, knowledge of procedure, and policy staffs, right? What are those guys doing? You know, it's, they were they won the they won the battle without any plan for where to go. I mean, well, it's it's like America fighting wars these days. We can we can win the initial combat and then we have no idea what we're doing, and we oftentimes you know throw our strategic gains away. So I, I think they that's that's a, a real like serious Obamacare standard you know or centered problem is is that there wasn't a plan and those guys got but um going back to your your point you think there'll be a crisis or there will need to be a crisis before some of this what 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 do you mean in that do you mean in terms of our governing institutions that somebody says you know ultimately we can get rid of the epa and the fda and trust the states to do that for example to pick two popular ones that everybody likes on some well uh, let's say that's that have good images there's a big problems with both on a lot of ways but or do you mean a general cultural crisis on the level of you know maybe not civil war two but at least you know illinois goes bankrupt california you know starts passing insanely unconstitutional laws and uh, refuses to enforce you know federal courts dictates that they reverse them or you know so what do you yeah. mean by crisis well, what I mean is, I mean, in, in Tennessee, we have multiple counties where you can only get one, one type, one Obamacare health insurance. If you just leave Obamacare to its natural conclusion, it's going to implode. I said this on our blog, God, like five years ago. No one listened. I might as well change my name to Cassandra. Uh, 
But there is the argument that it's designed to implode. And that was my argument. That was my argument from when the first second I read the bill. It was apparently clear. But once it does collapse, something will have to be done. And it's just a matter of who's there to do it. And, you know, if there's a certain amount of intestinal fortitude for someone to say, listen, it didn't work. It ain't working. No one will be able to buy health insurance in the individual market unless we rip this thing out and start from scratch. And at that point, there might be enough political cover to say they'll be able to do that without everybody getting fired. But the right people have to be there when that implosion happens. I mean, by the time it happens, you could potentially have, you know, Democrats in the House and Senate, and those Democrats in the House and Senate will somehow blame the Republicans successfully for Obamacare. Like that, that, that program was the, the Republicans' fault. They didn't do anything about it. They knew it was going to come to an end. We're going to bring in single payer. And they'll use that as their excuse. I mean, and there's plenty of people that are already grumbling and saying, gee, wouldn't single payer be great? Come to work with me. I'll show you what single payer is. And it could be vastly improved. But even single payer systems in the United States have a pop-off valve. National, the the NHS in England has a pop-off valve um, for the wealthy, where the wealthy can go into, you know, go into a private system. It's not there for everybody, but but for the people it is, it is. And, you know, but, but all the people who are screaming for single payer are not going to be able to afford the pop-off valve. And they're going to be pretty hacked off when they're the ones getting the wrong kind of insulin. They're the ones that are not going to get, they're going to have to wait longer for their, op, their knee replacements and not move to the front of the line. They're going to be the ones getting anti-anginal medications instead of an elective stent. So those are the big things there. So I think the Volgi remembers this and, and maybe some of you do and not in a weird kind of way but I do ascribe uh, some belief in the fourth turning and, and not in a weird banyan kind of way either but how are those heroic Millennials turning out for you <laughs> <laughs> I, I I might have a little bit of hope reserved for them but but the concept being for those who don't know that the history has been you can you can look at history in such a way, that it divides into four generational archetypes that follow a repeating pattern. And we are in, currently, what should be a crisis. Uh, whether you or not you deem the war on terror and the various political divides in countries, not only ours, but Britain, Germany, etc., as that crisis, or whether it's something like Doc is saying, I don't know. But yeah, I do believe, and, and I'm an optimist. I mean, Volge can attest all the way back to high school that I, I was the optimist in the group, you know, always saw kind of the good and the, and the benefit in the future. Yeah. So see, um, the Gort was the optimist. I was the pessimist and um, the pewter was the egotist. Yes. <laughs> so I think things will get better. You know, I've said on Twitter a couple of times, you know, it'd be really interesting to see if the government, if we could ever get the government uh, to change out of a two-party system, because I honestly think that's what's broken. I, I don't think it ever happened. This is like, I do have shades of pessimism in me occasionally, and I don't think it ever happened. I tend to agree with Volge when he says it, it's kind of baked into our constitutional-based system uh, to have two parties. But I think the Democrat Party is on the verge of imploding. Uh, I don't think they can maintain the coalition of their very special interests. I think the Republican Party is equally in pieces, largely out of this election cycle. 
and largely along the same lines that Doc was kind of saying of, of you have, I'll say, the libertarian type Republicans all the way to the Reagan Democrats to, you know, some of the extremes. Uh, I, I think it's, it's such this mishmash of smaller groups that are fighting for their ideologies that it's going to have to change. Now, break, break. I think there are some concrete things, kind of back to Volvi's original question. I think there are some concrete things that you can actually do to fix it. And, but I don't know if anyone will have the political willpower to do so. Uh, I work in and around the federal government every day. There is a tremendous amount of waste in there. And it's not, it's not intentional. It's not, hey, we're going to pour millions of dollars into this program just on a whim. It's, it's unintentional because of the bureaucratic size and just mismanagement that goes on there. You will have two and three programs in the DOD and other uh, branches of the government that are doing the same exact thing. And it would be relatively, I'll say relatively easy if we ever could get to like a, lo- a budget line item evaluation of the government and what programs are doing. There are some agencies that are actually moving this direction and they're really kind of controlling their costs because they, they've realized the free pizza lunch that has been promised and that boils all the way down into individual agencies because it's not just at the politician level, at the federal level, but you have agency directors and, and uh, subdirectors saying, yeah, we'll do that program because that's a great idea. That's good and that's good and that's good but they never have the willpower to turn something off because something new came on. And that's a hard decision to say, hey, we're going to cut this program because it means people are losing their jobs, that they're going to have to go look for new things, that career government employees, the ones they're supposed to take care of, are no longer going to have a job either. And that just doesn't happen. But if we can get the willpower to do that, and, and some agencies are edging towards that, they're starting to realize that we can't spend a super majority of our budget on operations and maintenance and not even tackling new things. That's where you can see some change from the federal government. And if we can start tailing that down, I believe you would see some radical changes in the federal government where we could do some compromise on beneficial programs across the aisle. The, the part of the problem, though, is that, I mean, there's a human dimension with the federal government in the sense that, you know, if you're the vice president of, hmm uh, in a corporation, uh, you have a bottom line for your division. If your bottom line is good, chances are you're making money hand over fist. You personally are making money. Uh, and if cutting costs, if stock market analysts say, boy, we think you know cost cutting is the, the big thing now, you will go in and you will cut costs and you will cut people's jobs and you will do whatever because that you feel either that's your duty or you feel, hey, my stock options are going to go up and I'm going to make a crap ton more money. You know, if you want to take a uh, principled or cynical view, and I think people are always a mix of both, but in the federal government, you don't have any uh, anything on the line per se, other than your employment. Um, in fact, you know, you're, you're on a schedule, but past a certain point, you know, you're in the senior executive service, you're not going to make much more money. So where do you tend to get the prestige, both, you know, publicly, but also from your own psychic compensations from, you know, Doc can go save somebody's life and he comes home feeling probably way better than most of us ever will in any day. But every job that you want to do has some reason. I've solved a technical problem. I've deciphered some odd thing. I have taught a third grader to, you know, 
conjugate a verb correctly, whatever it is. There's something that makes you go, yeah, wow, I did something really good. In government, the when you get up the chain and the promotion kind of stops and, you know, you're very incremental, almost perfunctory kind of things. Um, if you're not in an upper out agency like state or some branch of the military, really what you, you know, empire building becomes very appealing on that level. You know, I'm doing something important because it's what I'm doing. So of course it's important. And how do we show it's important? We get more money allocated to it and we get more headcount allocated. And I think, you know, that's a really powerful psychological um, factor to have to fight against. Even if we say, yeah, in principle, we know we can't spend more money. But getting Jim to say, you know, the, you know, subsidy for sorghum-based whatever, you know, alternative fuels is, you know, something we really could do with that. Well, wait a minute, this is really important. That guy is going to fight to the death for the continuation of the sorghum-based alternative fuel rules, whatever it is. And, and partially because he's invested in it. I mean, literally, that's who he is. He's defining himself as the undersecretary of agriculture for wheat-based whatever things. Anyway, so I, so I think I think it's it would be nice if it could boil down to, hey, this is a balance sheet problem. But in government, is this is the great error of Ross Perot and Donald Trump and all the great businessmen who will come in and say, you know, I'll just get out of the hood and fix it. No, no, no. You know, and we want to run government like a business. Government doesn't run like a business. Business is simpler in a lot of respects, um, and it's more complicated than others. But money is like we were talking about before with the issue of, you know, ultimately being able to have a number, cold, hard number, make the decision for you makes it a lot easier. And in government, the numbers are not that cold or hard because, you know, oh, look, we get our baseline budget's going to go up by this much or hmm, who knows, new politicians are going to come in. You know, that guy, that guy's from a farm state. He's going to really help us out or you know, whatever it is. I don't, I, I, I tend to be less sanguine, but you have way more experience on the ground. So I defer to your sense that, you know, there is some something possible there. But having spent a little time in and around the government as a, you know, sort of employee and beltway bandit and whatever, you know, boy, it's tough, right? I mean, I was around the Defense Department a little bit when we had the great peace dividend coming through when we were, you know, building down it. And just getting people to even acknowledge that there was a spending crunch coming and there actually was then because George Bush, you know, cut the defense budget essentially by half people just didn't want to deal with it. I mean, and when, and also contractors as well, um, uh, the ones who, who did deal with it earlier and got their heads around it ended up doing really well. And most of the other ones are gone, but I think there's a, I think there's a psychological component of incentives. Well, not even psychological, it's economic of incentives within the government that's going to fight. And then especially in administrative agencies where their charters are nebulous, their authority comes from who knows where. And, you know, actually, you know, getting change out of them. I don't know. I'm pessimistic. Well, I just wanted to jump in real quick. I think I want to say um, right off the bat, I think we all survive. But I think no matter what you do, you're never going to be able to, to have the outcome I think you want. And I think part of the issue is we all live in that kind of nostalgia. Everything's back to the Ozzy and Harry days when you think of the nuclear family, those kinds of things. Look back at those pictures of how things used to be. No matter what you do, no matter what policy you may implement today, or, you know, by God, you know, they elected, elected all conservatives, you know, to the House, the Senate. It was totally conservative. You're never going to go back. 
you're never going to get it back to a state where you think it was good because you know every every generation has their issues. You know, we think it's terrible today. Well, you know, 40 years ago, our parents thought that probably thought to themselves, "What are our kids going to do? The world's falling apart." Every generation thinks the world's falling apart. So, and they always think that everybody behind them had it better. So, I think you know. As you go forward and you look at these solutions and what's going to be really beneficial to the country, you have to ask yourself, one, what perspective are you looking at that through? I mean, is it rose-colored glasses of the past or some idealistic utopian vision of the future? That's actually that's a, that's a really good point, and it actually extends down to the programmatic thing. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to be made that, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, Republicans running on tax cuts. Well, when you got whatever percentage of the electorate that's not paying a lot in federal taxes, all of a sudden that's not the big slogan that's going to win you a broad-based support anymore, is it? It, you know, may get you that 50x percent, but yeah, it, it the, the this, intellectual nostalgia is just as powerful as the sort of emotional nostalgia you're talking about too, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, the old saying is you can never go home. I mean, you just, you just cannot get back to that, that state. You, know, you go back to that state and you realize this isn't what I remember it to be. You know, everybody's got that idealized version. I mean, if you went back and asked people about the, the founding of this country, they would think, well, everybody walked into the you know, delegate hall and signed the constitution. It was all hunky dory and everybody agreed to it. Not realizing that, you know, the anti-federalists, the federalists, there was all this negotiation, there were all these compromises that were made. You know, some, there's always going to be someone who's not happy. Somebody has to sacrifice something. Again, well, and don't, for, and don't forget the loyalists, right? What correct. percentage of the American population were loyalists? Yeah, I didn't want it at all. But again, you can never please anybody, everybody. You know, that's the old, the old you know, saying that Reagan had, just because you're you're 80% my, you know, friend, you know, doesn't mean that, you know, you're 20% my enemy. We're still 80% friends. Nobody's going to agree on everything. You know, the, the, the four of us sitting here are not going to agree on everything 100%. We all have the same, I think, base of values. But again, how those I values disagree. are interpreted. Oh, I see, disagree. There you go. See, I, I quit. I'm going home. <laughs> but but you, you get what I mean. We all have that ideal. Everybody thinks that their version of how things need to be is the right version. And, you know, you see a lot of that in academia today. These kids, I should, I'm, I'm like 100 years old, but these, these kids today, Everybody thinks that they're smart, that they're the, they've got the solution, that they've got the answer to the, the, the question that nobody's ever had before. They've got the final solution for this. And, you know, the, the old joke is the older I get, the smarter my parents get. You, you know, I mean, it's, it's, everybody thinks when they're young, they know everything. But as you get older and older, you realize, you know, those people that were telling me that, hey, don't do that, they were right. You know, they really had a point. They lived through these kinds of experiences and that, you know, these are things that I might want to listen to. But again, I, I think... It's it's always going to be difficult to come up with that vision of what things are going to be because no matter how ideal they are for somebody else, someone always is going to be on the losing end of the. Of the ideal or not, let me f focus a question to you as I did with um, Dr. J there, Mandarin. Uh, what do you think in terms of this hyper politicized, crazy time we in? Is it is it a, is it a function of circumstance? Are we in a bad time and we'll come out of it as we did in the seventies, as we did in you know the late eighteen fifties? There are different ways to come out of it. Whatever. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen? I, I think and, already, and, I, and I'll say this immediately: no one can predict the future. No, no, we can't. I, 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 I spend a lot of time doing professional historical stuff, and no one can predict the future. Yeah, Too and I, I'd, I'd be wealthy if I could. And you know, I think that the truth of the matter is, you're always coming out of it. it everything is a constantly evolving; nothing is stagnant. And I, I think you see that. I mean, you're always going to have again these outliers, these zealots, whatever you want to call them. We talked about before, always pushing for something. So things are always going to change. Yeah, they, again, can, they can win, though. 
right they, they can but but understand right it doesn't it doesn't have to be and when we talk about this it doesn't have to be a leftist zealot it can be someone who has is a conservative you know who's willing to go and push those goals and push those ideals and you know come up with that winning argument again everybody thinks you know in terms of and i blame you know we use it we use the term war too much you know it's the war on drugs it's the war on poverty it's the war on this everybody sees that in all like those kinds of battle terms you know in in the long run i think it really is going to have to be a argument of ideas not a war of ideas but a, a discussion of ideas and again i think eventually people will realize that you know what yeah i feel good about this and it's great when you're young but as you get older reality starts to set in and you're always going to have people that are never going to grow up you have oh. the peter pans of the world that never going to no matter what no, they're always going to live in that fantasy you know bubble yeah god bless them <laughs> two 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 things though one is that your heraclitean position that you know everything has changed is is well taken on a level but on the other hand, uh, you know, the, there's always, you know, civilization is invaded every generation by a cohort of barbarians. We call them children, right? There's, there's always going to be a basis for childish policies. And we, civilization is predicated on educating them out of their childishness. And as we alluded to earlier in the things, one of the problems I think we've got is that our education system by sort of having absorbed intentionally or unintentionally the sort of cultural Marxism and the water and stuff like that is contributing to the problem in a great respect by being partisan on some level, and but also uh, at the same time, pushing people away from the actual information and facts that they need to be able to come to an informed decision so yeah. that it becomes, I feel, I whatever. So, and, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I think what bothers me the most is when I hear people say, what is with kids today? What is with, the, what is with these kids today? And I say to myself, Every it's not the kids. It's, it's not the kids. It's the adults. It's Every the generation parents. says that. There's a, uh, and, but, 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 but to but, some but, respect, the there, there usually is something wrong with kids, but it's something different. That It's something new because sure. circumstances changes. Like you say, it's, circumstances are always different. Kids in the 70s, you know, what's with these kids today doing all the drugs? Well, that wasn't a big deal with kids in the 40s, but kids in the 40s had other things going on, right? I mean, that were, you know, the, their old people were yelling at them about. But I, I, I don't know that because that's a constant sort of perspectival problem, uh, it means that we can totally overlook whether some of these things are serious or lasting, or if we just sort of say, well, what happens, happens. Well, you know the Mandarin's standing on his front yard screaming at the kids, so. I'm doing uh, it right now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, if you guys see on video chat, he's, he's actually got an air gun, and maybe he periodically mutes it and yells something about, you know, that's zoysia grass. You, that's zoysia grass, you punks, and, and starts firing. But you know, we can't see who, who he's firing at. So, so Gord, what do you think? Do we get out of this uh, partisanship through a you know gradual meliorist situation like the Mandarin suggests, or do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better, like Doctor J thinks? I think it's going to. I lean more towards the Mandarin, where it's going to ease back. I think you're going to see some of that pendulum swing back probably in the next election in 2020. Uh, I think Trump is such a polarizing character that the Republicans that aren't supportive of Trump, if there's not some real progress made towards addressing some of those, their concerns will likely not show up. I think to a certain degree, I think Doc was kind of saying this, it could be that we're going to swing and, and have some Democrats start stepping in. Well, but didn't, didn't, a, didn't a lot of us not show up last time around the whole you know and sort of never trump it got a lot of publicity you figure anybody who was going to sit it out sat it out i mean i guess you could always have more 
right? Now you can, I say right. never say never, but right. in terms of committed Republicans, uh, you probably... I think a lot of the never Trumpers actually voted for Trump. You think so? I think a lot of the never Trumpers actually... Yeah, I really do. I think there's a lot of people that they pulled the lever, but you could never get them to admit that in a million years because mm-hmm. they just really did not... Or just simply the Democrats are so far left that in good conscience... You know, anything to the right of them is a better choice than that. Well, and so I, I think the number of people that they would, you would never get them to admit it in a million years, they did pull that lever. And also, I think you had a lot of people that weren't pulling levers that showed up and pulled levers. Just like with Obama, there was a huge amount of the black vote that came out and voted for Obama that didn't come out of midterms and they did not come out for Hillary. But you had a whole bunch of marginalized Reagan Democrats who could not relate to Mitt Romney, um, who then came out and said, yeah, I like this guy. This guy, this guy speaks the same language as I do. This guy, um, he's one of us. And in a certain sense from in the New York circles, he is more one of them than the other people with $10 billion in their bank account. All the people with $10 billion in their bank account in New York, they can't stand Trump because he got his building things. He's got dirty hands. And all of these people you know, their $10 billion, they earned it very cleanly by you know, swapping differentials of paper transactions of stocks and crazy things like that. So, uh, so they have the good money. Let, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. I will note first, I would bet your next year's salary against my next year's salary that Trump does not have $10 billion in his bank account. However, um, <laughs> that said, uh, I just wanted to... Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, all of us put together. Uh, so, but do you think though, okay, your, your thesis is that this was actually the, the victory or revenge of the Reagan Democrats. The fact is, right, the Reagan Democrats in a lot of ways are still Democrats in the sense that they're comfortable with the redistributive state. They, their mores are you know, usually populist, people tend to say, very pro-military, a lot of them out of the South. But really what I'm interested in here is the question of their relationship to the state and essentially wanting to redirect it towards what they view as good ends as opposed to the classical liberals you were talking about as the far-right guys who want to reduce the scope of state action for the increase of freedom. Do you think that basically, you know, if there is a synthesis that comes out of this as Gort and Mannerinhart, that basically we're just actually seeing another click on the ratchet effect and that thank God for Gorsuch and everything else, but that essentially the center of gravity and the polity is swinging left. Even though even though, if Trump is really in power because of, if he realizes, because he's not a professional politician, but if he realizes he's in power because of Reagan Democrats, is he going to act like Reagan Democrats would like him to act? And and, and it seems to be his instinct because he's fundamentally a Democrat, right? Yeah. Is that we just do good things with this giant government. We don't, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that he's... His, I think his instincts are Reagan Democrat. And I think that his, the, the people that are his most vociferous supporters are, and all of them have one thing in common, is that they all, you know, worship the state religion. You know, they're all the ones putting their hands on their hearts at, during the Star Spangled Banner. They're the ones going to the 4th of July parades. These are, the pe- these, are, these are the people who, you know, mom, apple pie, Chevrolet, baseball, Americans, and not, you know, the other Democrats, the McGovern Democrats, who, you know, America is a slave-owning, evil, and anything that's even at all American, whether it's guns or um, parades or 
patriotism is all icky bad that we look down upon. So all of these people that worship the state religion of the founding fathers of all the things that make America great have been marginalized by the Democrat Party. And, you know, there's a lot of people on to the right of Trump whispering in his ear, please, dear God, give us Gorsuch. And I'm grateful that he gave us Gorsuch. And, you know, you know, please try to espouse these policies. But his head, honestly, is not there. And I mean, his head is more, he's a centrist. And it, it makes me wonder what's wrong with the Democrats that they're screaming so loudly when we elected the leftmost choice that we had running in our primary. Uh, I mean, I was astounded. I mean, I, I had this discussion around my dinner table a million times where I'm saying, listen, you know, you have a whole political spectrum left to right. Donald's the leftmost. Ted's the rightmost. And everyone else is in a continuum in between. I mean, the guy originally I liked, the guy I wanted to vote for, dropped out of the race, Scott Walker, before he even, before even a vote was cast. Broke my heart. So, so I think that's kind of what happened. And, you know, like I said, I don't even think Trump really thinks about politics as politics. But instinctively, he kind of, if you're going to plug him into the spectrum of who he is as a person, he is that Reagan Democrat like that. I think the issue is, is that the reason I think that Hillary, the Democratic Party, is having such a, a hard time is they've gone to so far to the margins and they've gone to these special interests. You know, they, they want to champion gay rights. They want to champion transgender rights. You're talking about populations that are like 0.2% of the population. And some the transgender community was what, less than a tenth of a percent of the, of the, of the nation. Those aren't issues that to, you know, Joe and, you know, Joan, you know, public don't care about. They don't care about whether, you know, this guy wants to, you know, have a sex change operation or what have you, they want to know, hey, is, is my factory job going to be gone tomorrow? You know, are we going to sign some goofy trade deal where now my job shipped off to Mexico or my job shipped off to, you know, China somewhere? And I think that's where you're seeing, you know, again, where the Democrats are really, you know, the more left they go, they go to these outlier groups and there's less of those people. You know, if you listen to Hollywood, 50% of the people in the country are, are, are gay, right? But in reality, it's a small portion of the population. And I think eventually you start to alienate everyone else. And I think that's why you see Trump, you know, doing as well as he did. You know, the irony is, you know, John F. Kennedy would be a Republican today. I mean, based on his policies. I mean, it's how, that's how far the Democratic Party has shifted to the left. But anyway. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the polity has shifted tremendously to the left for a whole bunch of reasons. I think overwhelmingly so is the the sort of social cultural ones you know i think that did more to shove us left than even the great society you know or the new deal but what's that sound crap sleep sack set off the fire alarm again cooking his cricket eye stew or those toad cheese biscuits he eats let's get this cleaned up before the fm 4000 fire suppression system kicks in god only knows where pewter and the czar are Maybe they're at the Leaping Peacock again, but they're not going to like the smell of burnt sluice-stack food when they return. Once again, thanks for tuning in to Radio Gormagons. Tune in next week when we'll have another episode in the strange series from Castle Gormagon. Well, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs>